0: gracious uh welcome we love you would y'all just give a a hand clap for the Dornbach family we love you guys And, and i will echo that uh carlos and michelle ruiz absolutely emphatically said if you are going to the command and general staff college of all the churches that you can choose refuge church is the place to go And of course, our, re- our immediate response, because we trust their judgment, is, well, what's the name of the church? And they said, Refuge Church. How many of you find the concept of refuge appealing to you? How many of you re- uh, believe that God is our ultimate refuge? Refuge. And then when we talk about being a refuge church, that it isn't a retreat away from a position of failure or a position of weakness, but it is running towards true strength and power. And so when they said refuge church, we were like, we are sold. And yes, uh, Pastor Dornbach, uh, on the second service here, because we, we had to come back after that first service, not just because of the uh, <clears throat> awesome breakfast that y'all served us. <laughs> that definitely hooked us in, Right. But man, the humility and the love and the authenticity we experience with you as men and uh, brethren and sister and in Christ Jesus, we experience that. And sure enough, that second service, our daughter got the Holy Ghost right here at this altar. Yeah. And so we, da- we absolutely must say thank you. Thank you for being the church that you are. Thank you, Pastor, for being the man of God that you are and your missionary family here to the Liberty, Missouri area. And thank you for just being you. Isn't it awesome that you can come to a place and, you know, you hear that adage, come as you are, come as you are. But if you come as you are and you don't leave change, then perhaps maybe there's a problem at that church. I can tell you this, that when, I, when we came to Refuge Church, we, we were accepted completely. And there were parts of us, not just visceral responses, but within ourselves. There were, there were things that we needed. We needed to drink from the waters and fill that refuge in Christ Jesus. And we experienced that here in this church. And I just want to say thank you. To God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so I wanted to share a quick picture to y'all who were at the retreat. How many people were here at the retreat last week? It was awesome, right? I hope you all do that again next year. It was, it was pretty powerful. But I wanted to share my first night here, a uh, picture of that, just real quick before I get into my sermon. Uh, that's me icing my ankle with a thumb up because uh, as I approached uh, the basketball court, somebody said, uh, Hey, do you want to you wanna cover Tim or do you want to cover Pastor? <laughs> and immediately I thought, man, I feel like I'm being baited into something really difficult here, right? And sure enough, those two were ballers, man. So I was like, well, I don't want to go against the pastor in case I injure him or something, right? So why are y'all laughing at that? I'm just kidding. But um, I, so I chose Tim. And I was like, okay, maybe I can hang with him, right? Man, Tim is dribbling between his legs, behind his back. He's running everywhere. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And sure enough, I hurt my ankle on Friday night. So thank you, Tim, if you're here. God bless you. Is he here? There you are. Thank you, Tim. I love you, brother. <laughs> and he said, I, talking to him the next day, it sounded like he was going easy on me. And I'm like, man, I was actually trying, but he was just like chilling, you know. So thank you for that. And what a blessing it was to be uh, at that retreat and to see you uh, minister. The, the Man, those devotions, the sermon, the bonfire, the fellowship. The, the the mesmer the mesmerized moment where I saw young men and young women quoting scripture from memory. Man, didn't that it made us old folks think, man, where am I in this thing, right? He's like, he's getting them to quote scripture as part of his message, and I was like, Oh, maybe I'll try that next Sunday, huh? And some of you adults were like, oh, avert your eyes, don't look at me, I'm not gonna quote scripture like that. Let the kids do that, right? But we want to say thank you, Refuge Church, and a pastor asked me to just share some of our experiences in military chaplaincy, and it absolutely ties with the message I'm going to preach today. But um, as far as military chaplaincy, just so I can give you a little bit of uh, context to our ministry, uh, imagine this. In the military in the United States, we have about 1.8 million uh, that are on active duty. That's across all services, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine. Do we have any of those prior service folks in those services here? Give them a round of applause, please. Thank you. But as you know, we also have a Space Force, right? Space Force, y'all heard of that? So young people, if you ever want to be called a guardian, you know, maybe one day go to space or you want to be a chaplain in Space Force, we need a chaplain in the Space Force still, okay? But military chaplaincy, so 1.8 million on active duty, roughly 800 to a million on our reserve component, Reserve National Guard and Active Guard Reserve. So that's over 2 million that we're serving. Now think of this, though. Beyond military service, there are about 18 million veterans in the United States of America, of which they sit here in your congregation today. So over 20 million people have been a part of an institution that was designed for ethical and moral violence sanctioned by our country. And you tell me, do they need Jesus? Do they need the life-giving message of hope that can redeem all things? When Jesus said, I make all things new, that wasn't just some things new, but all things new. All creation, all your pain, all your sorrow, all your failures, he makes all things new. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Military chaplaincy is just that. We proclaim him who makes all things new and brings healing to those who otherwise would never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so over 20 million people, right? Active, reserve, veterans, and guess how many UPCI-endorsed chaplains we have? We have 20. We are less, so we, we claim the military as less than 1% of our society. Chaplaincy, less than 1% of our military. UPCI chaplains, less than 1% of military chaplains. That's why we need amazing churches like this to go home to. Because we're, I can tell you this, we get burned out fast. My next assignment, I get to the honor to replace Carlos Ruiz again. Uh, <laughs> I get to replace him at an airborne uh, community. So I get to jump out of perfectly good airplanes for Jesus, right? (laughs) Turns out, uh, Pastor, that, you know, not only do you have a congregation with a lot of people with advanced degrees, you have a lot of people who like jumping out of planes as well. (laughs) Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? And so uh, with that, I actually just in honor, so military, we usually give coins to honor those who have uh, given us an opportunity to proclaim Christ or do something special um, normally we give a coin, but I'm going to give a pair of airborne wings uh, to Pastor Dornbach today. So, <laughs> and just so you know, it takes three weeks to earn that, and what it represents to me, Pastor. So I hope you you keep it. Um, it represents three things. It represents access to others. It represents risk, relationships, and the opportunity for revival. Because if we're not willing to take risks on behalf of God, who took a risk on us through his son Jesus Christ, how can we do no less than that? When we think of Jesus Christ as being the incarnation of God, God manifested in the flesh, he took the ultimate risk when he, from the position of ultimate power, omnipotence, everlasting, And he condescended himself into the form of a bondservant. He put himself in flesh. God, Emmanuel, God with us. He took the ultimate risk. And he experienced the very pain, the insanity that the human experience entails. Think of all the things that could have gone wrong as Jesus was alive. When he was as the incarnation. As Brother James preached on today, I love how you, that you posed that question, how must we respond to suffering, but you framed it in a Christocentric way where we looked at how did Jesus respond to suffering? That he had ultimate power and he could have called upon the angels, and yet he, he just basically allowed himself not to call upon those powers. And instead, what did he do? He said... If it, is a, if it is possible, let this cup, round, cup pass from me. But nevertheless, what? Not my, let you, not my will, but let your will be done. We have to take risks in our faith. We have to take risk, and not only in that, as I uh, share with you this idea of the airborne chaplain, we, we don't need airborne wings to proclaim Christ, but it gives us access to the opportunity to proclaim Christ to those who are faced in their mortalities uh, at least once a month of their life. I actually had a paratrooper once when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. He said, chaplain, I know how many times I prayed last year, and I'm like, how is that remotely possible? He said, I just look at my jump log, and I know how many times I jumped out of a plane. (laughs) I remember one time I was at a a joint readiness training center. We were jumping into whatever you had in your back is what you had for the first few days of that training exercise. And there was one paratrooper who actually was was a self-identified atheist. His father was actually a minister, and he had been Bible-thumped to the point where he's like, if you represent God to me, there is no way I want to serve that God. How many of us know people in our lives like that? where they reject God because they reject his people, where well, we get in the way. But if we can live that life just as John the Baptist who said, that, he may, that I decrease so that he can what? Increase. Increase. And I remember on that uh, weekend jump at uh, JRTC, this uh, particular atheist We had to run racetracks, meaning we had to keep circling around the drop zone over and over and over again. And uh, sure enough, when we were on the assembly area, it was very painful. It was, you know, people were passing out on the plane. People were throwing up on the plane. It was a bad place to be, I'll tell you what. And when we got to the assembly area, he pulled me aside, and he's like, chaplain, you know I'm an atheist, and you've never tried to force the Bible on me. But I got to tell you, when I was up in that plane, I was praying to something, and it had to be God. And as I, as, I, as I pray to this God and I just realize, what do I need? I need peace in my life. And we spent the whole training exercise talking about Jesus from that point on. When we put ourselves at risk, like those air-barren wings represent to me, we afford ourselves a relationship, and through relationship brings forth revival. Amen. So that's military chaplaincy to us in a nutshell. As a military family, we want to say thank you for giving us the opportunity to drink from the waters here at Refuge Church. We want to say thank you for that. Amen. So as I go into this word, I want you to keep that into perspective as I, as I use some of my military illustrations and my military chaplaincy experience. I don't speak for the U.S. government. I don't speak for the U.S. Army or the U.S. chaplaincy. I speak as a brother in Christ who's seen some really amazing stuff as God does his work in the, in the military community. Amen. And I I do not doubt that you all have amazing stories and narratives of seeing God at work at your workplace, at your school, in the grocery store. You see God at work. And that question of what is God doing here and how can I be a part of it is really the plight of the Christian, right? Right. And so as we go into today's sermon, I want you to think on this as Pastor preached last Sunday together, right? Because there's no such thing as a rogue Christian. If there are people who are rogue Christians... They will grow up in their faith, deformed. But if you are within community and the body of Christ and you have accountability, then you are together in the plight of being a Christian. In the crucible of our lives, you can ultimately be together in tragedy and triumph. Everyone say that. Together Together. in in tragedy and triumph. What if the Christian story, what if the Christian reality, what if being an authentic Christian meant understanding tragedy and triumph? Brother James, as you pose that question on suffering, I think through how Christians are not called to just suffer for the sake of suffering. We don't look for suffering because guess what? Life is always going to happen. Amen? Amen. There is suffering. And if you've never suffered in your life, guess what? It's coming around the corner. But that is not a statement to live in fear, but in validation that God can bring you through the suffering. (laughs) Suffering is inevitable because we live in a fallen world. And how many of us have experienced a Christian uh, adaptation of the faith, if you will, where suffering was something to be avoided? Where you are ministering to somebody and you see them in their challenges in life. And all you do is say, take two scriptures and call me in the morning. But you never abide with them in their suffering. As Brother James alluded to in in the book of Job. Being with those in suffering matters. When we think of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. That was suffering with us. Jesus as we as the writer in New Testament puts it, he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become what? His righteousness. He did not have to experience suffering, yet he took upon himself all suffering of humanity. So some of you are thinking, I've never been through suffering, wait it's coming. Or maybe some of you are saying, well my suffering's not as bad as the suffering of another person down the street. Suffering is suffering, friends. Tragedy happens round about us. You can turn on the TV. You can read it in the news. You can read it in a a Twitter account or what have you. But suffering riddles the human experience. Amen? Amen? And you look throughout the world where there is suffering that happens at the institutional and state level, at the local level, or even in the church, suffering happens. But if we're Christians... And we are called to suffer well, then we are together in tragedy and triumph. Amen. Amen. When Jesus told his disciples to take up your cross daily, was this, a, was this a statement of triumph? Was this a statement of tragedy or was it a statement of both? To take up your cross daily. Everyone say that, daily. daily. It's not, I feel comfortable today. So I'm just going to leave my cross at the at the house today. What if there is somebody you walk past that is in deep suffering? And if you put yourself in that position, if you take up your cross daily, you're almost in a sense allowing yourself to be the empathetic listener, the empathetic seer of their pain. And isn't that what ultimately God is to us? He sees you in your pain, friends. He sees you in your suffering. He sees you in your tragedy, and he doesn't leave you in your tragedy. But he brings forth triumph, amen, through the, through the cross, amen? Jesus Christ embodied both tragedy and triumph, and he reminds his disciples, guess what? They've rejected me, so what? They're going to reject you. What does that tell us? Suffering's coming. But Triumph ultimately comes to all that believe. Amen? So as we look into this, I, I, I really struggled with a, a, a specific kind of metaphor or a thought on what Christian tragedy and triumph is. And I, there, there's this really interesting, the Christian tapestry. Uh, have you ever heard of uh, tapestry before? Any show of hands? You ever seen tapestry? Do we have any hardcore people who can like sew? Anyone? None of y'all? All right. Well, when I was thinking about tapestry, you know, the weaving together of something beautiful and how much work it is, I came across this actually medieval tapestry, if you see in this picture. Uh, It was a 14th century tapestry. And what's so fascinating to me is that it depicts the whole uh, book of Revelation, but interestingly, it's in six sections, and I have the dimensions here. It's 468 feet long, 20 feet high, and there's 90 different scenes. And this tapestry here, it's in France right now, depicts the whole book of Revelation. And what's so fascinating to me is it took teams of people to intimately weave every little thread to depict these beautiful pictures. And it took about 50 to 84 years to make this tapestry. The interweaving, the tedious nature of it, The team aspect of it. Now think of that in terms of the Christian experience. Think about the tapestry of Christianity and that you see that it is not an individual experience, but it is a weaving of many stories, a weaving of many tragedies, a weaving of many triumphs. And you see ultimately, if you take a step back, that you can glimpse a little bit of how God is making things beautiful in his sight. What if you have gone through tragedy? Perhaps there's someone here who was violated as a child, and you're like, there's no way God can redeem that. But in his promise, he speaks about he will turn our sorrows into joy. He will turn our tears one day into what? Into dancing. What if you've been wronged at work? What if you've lost someone you love, and you can't help but think, God, I feel like you've betrayed me, and you've had tragedy in your life? What if I told you that the Christian experience is just like this? It's a tapestry of Christianity that is weaved with both tragedy and triumph. And that is what makes us truly followers of Jesus Christ. Because if he takes the tragedy of the sinful condition and can promise newness in that, then he can redeem everything. He can redeem everything, amen? And so I asked asked Jennifer, if if you'll both come up here, I was like, man, wouldn't that be cool if we had a tapestry that I can bring uh, to the church to show them? And uh, she actually uh, said, well, we have something like that, Mike. It's not loomed, it's not hand-woven, but it does capture tragedy and triumph for us. And she shared with me uh, this blanket. You saw in the picture earlier of our family that there were four of us in that picture. We had our son, Gabriel. Gabriel in 2013 and at the at two years and two months and 22 days asleep in his crib he passed away he went on to glory and this was one of the greatest tragedies of our life we've we've shed tears that parents should never have to to shed and for those of you who have lost children my heart aches for you whether it's through miscarriage maybe before you were a believer and you did an abortion. Loss of child, loss period hurts, doesn't it? And so when Jen shared this with with me, I didn't even realize how much this meant to her. But when we think of the tapestry of Christianity and the interweaving of both tragedy and triumph, I see a very beautiful picture of what God can do in our lives. This prayer blanket was made by another chaplain family, a dear uh, wife to a chaplain. And it's a. we were in Florida when our son went on to glory. And what's in this is a weaving of many things that meant a lot to us, the beach, the sunrise. And right here at the top left, there's a little patch of our son's footprint that looks like an angel. He actually painted this um, before he passed away, and it's his footprint. And right at the bottom is the word peace. Now for our family, this is conceivably what I would say is our tapestry of Christianity, where we see together through other believers that we can experience tragedy and triumph. Imagine the tragedy that I'm looking at right now, the sea of tragedies that experienced in front of me. I know, I cannot know the depth of many of your pains but I know a God who does. I don't know the pain that you're going to go through one day, but I know a God who says I will never leave you nor forsake you. You're never going to be alone in your pain, friends. And I know that there are people here who probably have profound tragedy, but they can put on the smile and say amen. But when they close the door, Perhaps there's shame. Perhaps there is sadness. Perhaps they're alone. You're not alone, friends. Because if we are the church, if we are, the, if we are a refuge church, we proclaim Christ and him crucified. For it is the power of God unto salvation. And God reaches into our darkness and brings us into his marvelous light. Amen. Amen. And so for that I say thank you. Thank you so much. If you'll just hang this right here, would you give my lovely ladies a round of applause? (laughs) I wanted to share that with you just to depict to you. We don't know each other's stories perfectly. At this at this retreat, I was blessed with the opportunity to really get to know some of y'all. And man, I enjoyed every minute of it, friends. Y'all have some of the most beautiful stories of redemption. Some of you, man, I, I just marvel at what one day, if I, if I never get a chance to retire and come back to Refuge Church, Pastor, but one day, we'll, maybe the other side of this life, maybe we'll be in his kingdom, in the house of our Father, and maybe one day we'll talk about how cool the story and the tapestry of your life revealed the beauty of God. Maybe one day, That loved one that you mourn deeply is in the bosom of the Father. And maybe one day they will greet you. But we go there knowing full well that he makes all things new. So how does that compel us in our walks with Jesus Christ today? How does that help us to walk and respond, as Brother James talked about, to the suffering of this life? Can we bear it all? We are not the Christ, amen? Amen. Thank God for that. We don't shoulder the world's sins. But Jesus Christ did. And he calls us to, to proclaim this to those who haven't heard it yet. The good news of Jesus Christ. And so as we go further in today, I want, I want to share with you a specific story within the, the Christian tapestry, if you will, in the book of Acts. There's a powerful story that's often over... Overlooked, And, uh, you know, we, we who do we usually key in on on the book of Acts? We like our Peter sermon, right? Yeah. Awesome, powerful, yay, and amen. Yeah. We like our little bit of John moments. And we like who? Paul. Paul, right? Man, that dude could preach, right? Unless, you know, somebody falls asleep and then he's got to raise them to life, right? Yeah. But there are so many characters in the tapestry of the book of Acts. And one of the characters that really struck me most is the story of Philip. Anyone in here ever do a deep dive in the story of Philip? Maybe, maybe our youth group has, right? <laughs> Y'all probably memorize everything about him. But some of you are like, who in the world is Philip? I heard that name before, but I'm not quite sure what, what's the big deal about his life. Well, I want to share with you, just as we saw this tapestry, you know, there's a specific scene in the tapestries and you see movements in the story. And I want to share with you just one specific scene today on the, uh, Philip's life. And here it's on Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 9. And it says this. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the evangelist. Everyone say the evangelist which was one of the seven, everyone say it was one of the seven, and abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Wow, Philip, you sound like an accomplished guy. He's got like this Airbnb where you get pancakes and prophecy all at the same time, right? But think about this, the characters in this scene. You got Philip the Evangelist, so clearly he has a reputation. Clearly he has some experience, and we're going to go a little bit into that. But then there's this character, Paul. And how would Phil feel about Paul? Paul, this once murderous person who actually killed, was a part of the killing of one of his fellow ministers of the gospel. This Paul who was once named Saul, who was part of the ravenous wolves who martyred the very first martyr of Christianity, who is what? Stephen. Think about this story. We're going to go into what it means for him to be one of the seven and also the evangelist, but let's look at his familial makeup here. He's got four daughters who prophesy. Can you imagine having four daughters who prophesy, friends? I mean, I have one beautiful daughter, but I can't imagine having four of them, let alone four of them that can prophesy. I mean, imagine, you're having breakfast, and they're like, hey, Dad, by the way, I uh, had a dream last night. And, uh, yeah, I saw uh, cities burning over here and, uh, you know, saw just, um, you know, destruction over there, right? You can't put nothing past a prophet that way, right? And it really reminds me, as I think through Philip's journey and story, when we think of tragedy and triumph, how there were so many experiences in his life that this is a beautiful scene, you know, with his four daughters and their, their prophets. But he's known for these things, being the evangelist, being one of the seven, and being the father of four prophetesses. And imagine that. If he was buried today in America, what his headstone would say. Here lies Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven, father of the prophetesses. That's a pretty pretty cool thing to have in your epitaph, wouldn't it be? I've seen some pretty silly epitaphs out there. Uh, One of them on a headstone, it says, he loves bacon. Imagine being known as the guy who loves bacon. And there's another epitaph, a headstone that I saw, and it said, I have four daughters and one bathroom, and we still loved each other. (laughs) That's a cool thing to be known for, right? (laughs) Philip was known to be the evangelist, one of the seven, and the father of these prophetesses. So I want to journey with you uh, very briefly on some of the parts of his story as we look into the text. So think about this. As we look at Philip's life, you know, we have to read the, the book of Acts in a very specific way, right? Don't we, don't we? But one thing that I think is helpful in reading the book of Acts is seeing it within the framework of the, the outline that Jesus says to experience the Christian spreading of the gospel. So what does he say in Acts one You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses uh, for me, where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and what? To the uttermost parts of the earth. Look to your left and right and say, hello, uttermost. (laughs) Everyone say, the uttermost is me. So in Philip's experience, he not only had this outline, this framing, if we read his story, his part of the tapestry that is the book of Acts, but we also see the theological thread that carries forward in his story. We look in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive what? The gift of the Holy Ghost. And so we see that all throughout the book of Acts. It's normative. It was normative then, and it's normative today, amen? Amen. And so we see in Philip's story the very same thing. But look at the very first story when he was one of the seven. If we look in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 6, look in verse 1 and it says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, everyone say multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So I love this uh, language in here about multiplying. So uh, do we have any hardcore math geniuses in this church by any chance? All right. Y'all are like, no, no way. I hate math. That's why I went to seminary, pastor, because I don't want to do math. <laughs> but when we look at God's math in the Bible, right, we know that God brings addition, Acts 2. He, he added to the church daily. We see that he multiplied, just so as we read here. We even see him subtract, you know, Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Ghost, Right. We see addition, we see multiplication, we see subtraction, but we never see God divide. And as you read this particular scene in the church, mind you, this is the church just now starting. We're seeing multiplication, went from the 120 to the 3,000 to the scores thereafter in Jerusalem. We see the addition, the multiplication, and the subtraction, but we never see God divide the church. And the Apostle Paul warns them in 1 Corinthians 1 the very same thing that he had heard about division in the church. And when there is division, we have to get to it right away. Amen? And so we see that here in the story of Philip. That is the local context of Acts 6. We see social justice prevailing in the unity of the church. So as we read some of these uh, stories in the book of Acts, I want you to ask these two simple questions. Where is the tragedy? Where is the triumph? Everyone say that. Where is the tragedy? Where tragedy? Where tragedy? Where Where is the triumph? So where is the tragedy in this Acts 6 dilemma? Think about the apostles preaching mightily the word of God. Think about the multitudes that were being added to the church and that they had this awesome ministry, this table ministry, this ministration, a distribution of the food to the people, but then they started identifying each other on cultural grounds, that these Jews that were converting to this authentic Christian faith following the way, that some of them were culturally Hebraic Jews while others were Grecians or Hellenistic Jews, Think about the divide early already being experienced in the church. Man, these are the apostles, and they're already experiencing division. And think about what, was, what that all entails. You know, the Hebraic Jews were the Jews who ascribed to just Hebrew scripture, and it has to be in Hebrew, and predominantly all probably spoke Aramaic. But then you think about the broader invasion occupation of the Romans, the broader Hellenistic or basically Greek cultured folk. They came from all walks of life and they would come from all over that empire to come worship in Jerusalem. And imagine what it was like for the Grecians who come there. And then there's these elite people in the church who have the right culture. And then they othered them. What if the church today operates that way? What if we operated in such a way where we expected people to be exactly like us in order to experience Jesus Christ? How wrong would that be today? Be like me so you can be like Christ. You know what that is? That's a statement about ourselves and less about the Jesus we claim to serve. And so as the church was experiencing this in Acts 6, there was these Hebraic Jews who were getting proportionally more distribution of the food. And they rightly brought it, uh, the, the, the Grecians or the Hellenistic Jews, rightly brought it to the, the, the uh, awareness of the leadership. And what did the leadership ultimately do? They, went, they basically, uh, the 12, called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said... Uh, It is not reasonable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye among you, seven men of honest reports. Everyone say, honest reports. Full of the Holy Ghost. Everyone say, full of the Holy Ghost. And wisdom. Everyone say, wisdom. Whom we may appoint over this business. The church leadership wasn't abdicating the responsibility because it was less than, that it wasn't important. But they were called to a specific ministry at that point. They were the apostles. They were expected to proclaim the word of God. And that should be the thing that drew the people to Jesus Christ. But even in that, there were the multitudes coming, and there was a very legitimate and practical need as they gathered among the brethren and sisterin. Think about this. When Jesus fed the multitudes, what did the disciples say? Send them away so they can go get their grub on somewhere else, right? They didn't have Uber Eats while they were on the hillside. They couldn't be like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, I'm about to get a milkshake right now and, you know, some custard, right? They couldn't do that back then. So the disciples, as they were following Jesus, when the multitudes came to hear the word of God, they needed to eat. And instead, they would say, turn them away. And what did Jesus do? He basically multiplied the food and was like, man, y'all got it crazy here. I can feed these people. Go distribute it. Imagine the apostles now. We got the problem of multitudes here who are hungry, they're hearing the word of God, and we got to feed them. And instead of saying, let's turn them away like we did back in the days, maybe we can wise up and get some people of good reputation, filled with the Holy Ghost and filled with wisdom that can be confirmed and provide for the multitudes. Friends, if you are called in Christ Jesus, you are called into ministry. Some of you will never be on a platform to preach a sermon. And you know what? That's okay. Because what does matter is that you recognize that you, the, the mission field that exists is any relationship that you have. Far be it from us to think that the foreign missionaries have a monopoly on missionary work. Your mission field is whoever you have a relationship with. Your preaching of Jesus Christ is not predicated on having a microphone on, in your hand, but having a loving relationship to proclaim Christ to those people relationships matter, amen, and so the apostles recognized this, and so what was the tragedy, the tragedy was the church was starting to get divided in its early inception already, on cultural grounds, we don't need people to be like us, we need them to be like him, amen, and so we know that of the seven that were picked, Stephen was one of them, and the second one listed is our boy Philip, amen, There were five others, but they don't really get brought up anymore in Scripture. And we know this is an interesting point on this, that think about this. All seven of these chosen had Greek names. None of them had Hebrew names. All seven chosen. Think of the social justice moment that happened right there in the selection. And this came from the congregation saying, yay and amen, we picked those seven there. And they happened to not be perhaps Hebraic Jews. How beautiful is that in this scene of the tapestry of the book of Acts where we see even reconciliation in that facet? How beautiful is that? And so when we think of Philip's story, when they call him one of the seven, I want you to think back to this moment here in Acts 6 where he got an opportunity to be masterfully involved in caring for all those in need around them. Something as simple as getting your grub on. It wasn't Kansas City barbecue they were hooking him up with. It was some kind of cool Mediterranean food, you know, maybe some hummus or something, right? But he was making sure, regardless of where you come from and whatever your walk in life is, you will be provided for. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the church? So when we think of Philip, think on that. Think of the tragedy that they preempted when there was injustice. Even in the, the, the goodwill of distributing food, they were able to show God's triumph in that. Amen? Amen. And so another one of the seven who was mentioned earlier, Stephen, the first martyr in the church, we read that uh, in the very next chapter, as as we fast forward to the end of the chapter, chapter 7, and cast him out of the city and stoned him. Then the witnesses laid down their cloths at at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. Wait a minute. Is that the same dude that Philip was sitting with in Acts 21? So his boy, Stephen, you know, the dude that he helped serve the tables with, actually, I have, I'm gonna, he's going to sit down with this religious murderer. Imagine how God brought that tragic experience of Stephen's martyrdom in the face of a, men like Philip. These were real people, friends. These aren't just characters in the Bible. They had emotions like us. And Philip, we can't just look at him and say, oh, Philip the Evangelist, he must be this big holy spiritual person. Yeah, he's that person. He was used by God to bring miracles and proclaim Jesus Christ wherever he went, to Samaria, to the Ethiopian eunuch, but he was still a human with emotions. And imagine this, Brother Stephen, his co-laborer, that's someone like on the pastoral staff at the church being murdered by somebody down the street, and then fast forward several years, the dude signs up to go to your Airbnb and hang out with you and your daughters. Imagine what that looks like. But yet, we can easily gloss over, like we did, like in Acts 21, we can gloss over and not realize that Philip was a very human person hanging out with one person who actually killed one of his battle buddies. Saul was adamantly that religious person who believed he was doing something right. By persecuting Christians. And James, I'm thankful that you brought this up earlier. The martyrdom that exists today. Friends, people are still being martyred for the gospel. Did you know a recent research actually says since the crucifixion, 70 million Christians have been martyred up until today? Since the crucifixion, up to 70 million Christians have been martyred. Another research says this, between the year of 2000 to 2010, conceivably almost a million Christians were martyred in that decade. That's an annual martyrdom of 100,000 believers a year. Even beyond that, in 2011, 2021, another research, carrying forward the the previous research, says up to about 900,000 were martyred On behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ between 2011 and 2021. And we get so fixated on our first world problems here in America, our first world problems of individualism and materialism, and we get to this point of reductionism, of our own understanding of the gospel that says, you will suffer. And that the suffering that exists in this country, and I'm not trying to, you know, say it's not important, that it's not real. There are very real suffering that happens in America. But in light of that kind of persecution, does that not give you perspective on your faith? That the tapestry of Christianity is still being woven in the world today. The book of Acts ends at at chapter 28, but we live the Acts 29 reality. The church is still moving forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so this tragedy into triumph never stops for Philip. If we we fast forward a little bit into the next scene where he evangelizes Samaria, I want you to look at this. Acts 8, 5 through 8. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Everyone say great joy. joy. Philip, one of the seven. Hooking up food at the tables, his boy Stephen gets martyred, he goes and leaves, he bounces out about 35 miles north to Samaria, that's like going to Kansas City and back from here, and he goes and evangelizes these Samaritans. Where is the tragedy? The tragedy is the church is being persecuted. But isn't it amazing that wherever the church is persecuted, the church multiplies? Isn't it amazing that in Liberty, Missouri, perhaps there will be persecution, and instead of just complaining about it, you can see the opportunity of God multiplying his church. Many people just think, uh, over on the politics of it. Politics is people, but you know what? Our citizenship transcends our American citizenship because our citizenship is the citizenship of his kingdom. There are people in Russia that are fellow believers. There are people in China that are fellow believers. There are people in North Korea that are fellow believers. There are people in Iran that are fellow believers. Friends, if we can't recognize that persecution is inevitable, that we can't recognize that ultimately the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ can never be smothered by the world. It can be smothered. And so if you feel hardship in your life and tragedy in your life, there is nothing that God cannot make you more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. And we see that in Philip's journey in the tapestry of the book of Acts. We see that in Samaria. We see that in the Ethiopian eunuch. He does this massive revival of Samaria, but then the Holy Spirit leads him to another place down Gaza, and he sees this person often to the side of the road, right? Right? How many of y'all ever seen people on the side of the road and you're like, it's like a moral dilemma moment for me. Do I really want to stop for them, right? Some of you do stop and others are like, I don't know, man. I don't want to get shot today, right? But Philip, led by the Spirit, saw a tragedy before him. This Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Hebrew scripture this person from Africa who was a treasurer on behalf of the queen went to Jerusalem to worship the one true God and come to find out eunuchs have no access to the temple of God. And imagine that, what that must have been feeling, demoralizing feeling for the Ethiopian eunuch as he left Jerusalem behind him to go back to his place in Ethiopia that the temple I was rejected, so this God must reject me too. How many people come to church and sometimes they feel rejected by the church? God led Philip to reach this Ethiopian eunuch who conceivably, according to Hebrew theology, was ceremonially unclean and could not access the one true guide and covenant. And he, he reads Isaiah 53. And there's some beautiful, rich language in this. As we think of Philip being a part of God's work and dealing with tragedy and triumph. We see him evangelizing this Ethiopian eunuch when he says this simple question. Do you know who this scripture is talking about? Do you know what you read? Do you know what scripture points to? Do you know who speaketh the prophet? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him what? Jesus. Friends, if you've never read Isaiah 53 deep, know that Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. But he's also the suffering servant. And imagine the language in there that is so rich. Imagine the language in there that talks about that he was silent. He was like a lamb brought to the slaughter and the shearers were brought to him. Folks, that's cutting language. So imagine being an Ethiopian eunuch and you got cut when you were a child. Imagine the language in there. The cutting language in here that says, man, this dude's being rejected and he was cut. Maybe there's something to this person for me. And what does... Philip do. He reveals the one true God, Jesus Christ, manifested in the flesh to this Ethiopian eunuch. And he turns a tragic moment into what? A triumph. And I'm closing. Would you all stand with me? Friends, when we think about urgency in the church, we know that Philip ran to the eunuch. He didn't walk He ran to the eunuch. The Bible talks about he joined himself to his chariot. Who have you joined yourself in your life today? Somebody in your life that God is truly seeking, but you don't have the right words. What if they are searching the scriptures just like the Ethiopian eunuch? And all you can say is, I can tell you about Jesus. Isn't that enough, friends? Just like that paratrooper who was an atheist. You know who we talked about that whole time on the ground? We talked about Jesus. Because there was a sensitivity in his life where God brought him into this tragic moment of suffering, of hardship. And he brought forth a triumph, a redemption. Friends, this altar is open, and I encourage you, if you've never given God your past tragedies and not truly asked him, Lord, will you heal me, today is your day to be healed. When Philip preached in Samaria, he preached Jesus, and they got baptized in what? What? in the name of Jesus. And they sent Peter and John from Jerusalem when they had heard that people were being baptized, just so they can lay hands on them, so that they can get the gift of the Holy Ghost. Friends, today, this altar is open. If you've not been baptized, if you've not gotten the Holy Ghost, what a beautiful opportunity to do that. We love you and we thank you for the blessing today. To see how you make all things new. That the tapestry of Christianity is woven with tragedy and triumph. And for my friends here today, for those who have had true tragedy in their life, who have not put it at the foot of the cross, oh God, I thank you that you receive our tragedies today even the tragedies to come, you bring that hope of glory, where we can receive that triumph in Christ Jesus. So God, we lay it at your feet today. Lord, we thank you for stories like that of Philip. We thank you for the stories where we see the movements of your people moving through the tragedies of this world, but yet revealing the one true God, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the people proclaim your name, oh God, and we thank you for that blessing today, and we lay it at your feet.